we're going to just jump right in. Let's talk about this uh, Holy Spirit stuff or spirit in our series. Uh, we're going to look at breath. This will be our talk this morning. Uh, good breath, bad breath, um, all of it. Uh, and hopefully make sense of some of this stuff related to um, spirit, but then be, do some practice uh, afterwards as well. Um, so, um, hey, by the way, how was, um, last week was really good. I heard from a lot of you who experienced um, some things related to, to, to spirit, um, had spiritual experiences during the time together up front. And um, it's, it's, you know, this is the practice, right? So this is sort of the thing we do and we keep practicing because we never get it just right or perfect. And it's real easy for us to sort of, you know, leave that sort of, place of, of openness and, and seeking, um, uh, that which is, uh, spiritual and, um, and just thinking immediately about our, our current needs and our immediate needs. Um, and so, uh, it takes some practice and it takes some intentionality. And so we're going to continue to do that. Even today, we'll do some stuff towards the, um, during the time of singing and worship and we'll come up together and, uh, form a circle and do some singing and then, um, and then we'll try something. Um, uh, but today we're going to talk about uh, the spirit that um, created or was part of creation in Genesis chapter 2, um, verse 7. And um, this is, the, uh, this is a, a very interesting passage, one that is very, and, and first of all, it, it just to get you some sense of the literature. The literature in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is um, is called poetic literature. So it's a it's a it's a type of poem that is being um, that is being used as a device to teach. Okay, so this is um, this is poetic literature, and this is why it gets into this sort of description that is um, uh, amazing, beautiful, impactful, um, and should evoke some kind of response, some kind of feeling uh, to it. Uh, but here it is in Genesis chapter 2 in, in creation. Then the Lord God formed um, a man from the dust of, of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, the, the idea there, by the way, the man is, uh, um, is, the, um, is humanity or humankind. Um, and so um, there's some beautiful, um, in Hebrew, it's really beautiful because it's Ha'adam is the man or Ad Adam. You can hear that Adam in the, in the way it's uh, transliterated, but it's the Ha'adam. And then the earth is Ha'adma. So Adam and Adma. And they, the idea, it's, it's, it's very beautiful the way Hebrew writers wrote. It was to use language in sort of a rhythm and also um, beauty and uh, kind of bouncing off of each other uh, sort of way of, of communicating. And so oftentimes you'll see that in, in Hebrew literature. Um, so the man is created and he is created by what would appear as an ancient form of CPR. Uh, because... God breathes into his nostrils, right? The breath of life, right? And he forms man from the dust, right? So dust is as unliving as it could possibly be, right? You, you get that, right? That is like the, the least alive thing <laughs> that we have is, is dust, 
And, and so God takes that which is, and, and the, the Hebrew writer is doing this deliberately to say that which is unliving at its extreme, the most unliving thing is taken and formed. And when it encounters the breath of the divine, it becomes alive. Right? So spirit is always involved in new creation, in creation, recreation, new creation all the time. And so we'd expect to see that happen um, over and over again throughout um, biblical literature. And, and that is what we do find. And so the spirit that animates humanity here, um, man becomes a living uh, being. And it's, it's interesting because even the word nefesh in Hebrew is synonymous with ruach, which is breath and oftentimes translated spirit, right? So spirit, breath, um, living soul, living, breathing soul, right? The whole idea of breath uh, was something that the ancients did tie into sort of that which is transcendent or spiritual or something beyond us, right? So, uh, you know, when, when that happens, when we're, we're all living beings, we all have this spark of the divine within us. We all have something spiritual happening within us. Not that the breath itself is, is something that is, um, you know, outside of the material world or physical world, it, it, it isn't, but it's still spiritual according to the Hebrew thought. It's still very much something that is given as life by God and is part somehow of the spirit who animates us all um, and animates creation. Um, and so there's a lot of things here that, uh, that, that are really striking. One is that the spirit comes into us and animates or brings life to that which is unliving at its most unliving, in its most unliving state. <laughs> so we see this over and over again. When something is dead, that's oftentimes when new creation begins. And so the good news in this is that wherever you are, and this would have been good news to the hearers of this in, um, in those days, is that wherever you are in what state, ever state you're in, if you feel like there's plenty of darkness, if you feel like there's plenty of, of things that are not really alive in your life, that is oftentimes when the spirit comes in and begins new creation. So Genesis 2 is the first place we see this. Um, and then you have uh, in Matthew 16, and this is where Jesus um, uh, is speaking to the disciples. And he says to you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, and this is sort of, this is the, the sort of missional. So I'm categorizing this as like a, the missional statement here that Jesus is giving to his disciples. It's whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven or whatever you, so this is the missional statement he gives to them related to, and we're going to look at this, it's remarkable because he says this in Matthew 16, he's going to say it again in Matthew 18. The writer is going to expound on what he means by this. Okay, this is on the heels of Peter having, Jesus having asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And people were, you know, some of the disciples are saying, well, they think you're this, you think you're that. And then Peter says, um, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, you, yes, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. The spirit revealed that to you. Father revealed that to you. 
So, and then he says, now I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. We don't know what that is yet, right? Now, this isn't clear at this point. What, what is that? What do you mean by the, I'm going to give you the keys? And he's just told Peter on this rock, Petros, by the way, Peter in Greek, Petros is rock. On this rock, I will build my church. And the, 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 the gates of, of Hades or death will not prevent it from happening. No matter how much death comes, See that again? No matter how much death comes, life will always emerge from that. Nothing can stop it. Jesus himself will die and be resurrected, and the church will be resurrected at a higher level, and the church grew and grew and grew and grew. No death could prevent it from happening. Apparently right now in Iran, there is an overwhelming number of people who are becoming followers of Jesus. It is an explosion in the underground church that, are, that thousands and thousands, they can't even keep count of how many are converting uh, to Jesus. Uh, and, and, uh, and that's in the, uh, you know, under the, the, the extreme oppression and resistance they have had to be a church, and yet they're exploding in growth because not even the gates of Hades, nothing will prevent it. Wherever there's death, life always emerges. Spirit always hovers above the waters of darkness, of chaos, of pain. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom and I'm going to build my church on this and uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be. We don't know what that means. Apparently they did, but we don't know what that means. So as we continue on, you get to the, a couple chapters later in Matthew 18. But before we do that, let me just also give you the, so the two places where this missional statement hap- occurs, where Jesus says, here's what I'm giving you. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Okay, John 20, here's another missional statement from Jesus. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, so another really peculiar statement here. You know, if you don't forgive anybody's sins, they're not forgiven. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What do we, I mean, what 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 are we to make of that? So, um, but so back up. Okay. So we just, I just said in Matthew 16, here's a missional statement, right? Whatever you bind on earth, we don't know what that means. Whatever you lose on earth. But the thing that's interesting is that in Matthew 18, um, Jesus uh, gives an answer to, to what he's talking about there. It's not precise enough, but it's, it's, it's good enough. It'll get us there. So Matthew 18, at the time that the, and I'm going to just sort of, I didn't put this up here because it's very long. I'm going to give you the, the categories real quick. Okay. The categories of this chapter are broken up like this. The least of first and the don't make it hard for the least of these to make it to, to, to enter in to the goodness of what God is doing. God cares deeply for them. Number five, what to do if harm keeps happening to the least. And then number six, God has forgiven you, so forgive. <clears throat> so Matthew 18, this is where he gets into what he means by the binding and uh, the loosing, loosening um, and uh, forgiving and um, not forgiving. Um, all right, so Matthew 18, the least are first. This is where uh, the disciples come to Jesus and say, all right, who's the greatest in the kingdom? We just wanted to kind of know, you know, just for a friend. A friend's asking, you know, and we're just sort of, it's for them. 
Because we know, obviously, that, you know, none of us are the greatest. It's, you know. But uh, Jesus says, okay, bring a little child to me, right? And he places the child among them. He says, that's the greatest right there. But the way he speaks of them is that they're the lowliest. Why? Right? Today, we wouldn't think of children as lowly. That wouldn't be the term we'd use. Because in the ancient world, they didn't see children as these precious, innocent, lovable things. People didn't view them that way. They were definitely viewed as like, you know, you're way down here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, um, they were viewed very much as lowly. And to be seen but not heard and to be isolated, moved away from, you know, the, the important people, kind of separate them out because here's the important people. And Jesus says, no, 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 bring the children to me. They, they matter. But this is a metaphor. Jesus is tricking them in some sense, right? So this is what the author is saying. He's like, look at what's happening here. He brings the child and says, uh, have the child sit among, among us, the lowliest of the greatest in the kingdom, right? So they're just like, well, that's really weird and confusing and whatever. Okay. Uh, what does he mean by that? And what does he mean that we would have to then be like children? It, it, what, it, what is that all, you know, what is he saying here? We're supposed to lose our status and our position and our privilege. But then what he does is he continues on and he gets into, um, if anyone causes any of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, and then he says it would be better for them to have a millstone put around their neck, thrown into the sea, and, you know, it's really harsh. Um, and, uh, and then says, if, you know, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and, and all of this stuff, right? So a lot of these verses have been taken sort of out of their context, but if you follow the flow here, okay, he's just talked about children as lowly as those are the ones, the lowly are the ones who get to come in to the goodness of God and what God is doing on this earth. And then he says, if you prevent them or make it difficult for the lowly, God is going, to, it's better for you to have a millstone thrown around you if you do anything to harm them, right? Then he gets into the parable of the wandering sheep. If one sheep wanders away, what does it sound like? Children, children wander away. He's still running with that metaphor. It's just that he's clever now. He's brought in another one and it's about the sheep. And he says, if one of you and everybody who would have Grown up in those days would have understood this. If any one of your sheep wander away, aren't you going to do everything you can to go get that sheep and bring it back in? And isn't there going to be some measure of rejoicing? And isn't it more joyful for you when you bring home that wandering sheep than it is for the 99 who have remained? You know, is it, that's, this, is, this is how important the lowly are. The lowly now are not just children. The lowly are Anybody who is on the outside, anybody who has not yet been welcomed in, anybody who is still, uh, you know, the sinner among them, uh, you know, these are the people that, and you have to define what that is, but these are the people that are on the outside that Jesus is saying, these are the ones that have access to the goodness of God. And if you prevent them, that's a bad thing. Right? So then the parable of the wandering sheep, he goes into then dealing with sin in the church. And this is the one that's been commonly used to, here's what to do when someone's doing, being divisive in the church. If someone does something wrong, go to them. If they don't admit their fault, bring someone else with you. And if they still don't admit their fault, then bring them to the leaders of the church. And if they still don't admit their fault, kick them out. Right? So that's the one that's been used. But watch the flow again. This is all part of a larger flow in a context. 
Then he gets into the parable immediately after, into the parable of the unmerciful servant. This is the one who owes, the servant who owes his master 10,000 bags of gold. You know how much that is? One talent inside that bag was 20 years worth of a laborer's wages. Now multiply that times 10,000. This is what he owes. There's no way in his lifetime he could pay that back. Not even in several lifetimes he could pay that entire debt back. And he falls on his knees and he begs his master, please forgive me of my debt. There's no way I can repay it. Um, But if you forgive me, I'll do everything I can to try to pay it back, which is really ridiculous. And what does the master do? He says, you're forgiven and releases him. So then he goes to the one who owes him a small amount and he says, pay up. And the same thing happens. This is a parable, of course, right? So the same thing happens. The the writer says, and then that servant falls before his master and says, please forgive me of this debt. I'll do everything I can to repay it. And this servant who has just been forgiven of 10,000 bags of gold does not forgive him, but actually throws him into prison. And Jesus says, that's really bad. Like that's the stuff that gets God very angry. Because if you don't do that, if you cannot forgive, Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother, then God won't forgive you. So wait, you're saying that even if I ask God for forgiveness of sin, but I'm withholding forgiveness in my own heart that God's not going to forgive me. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Matthew's saying that. You know, we have to figure out exactly what that means, but I'm saying it's in there and there's something to be wrestled with that should create some measure of discomfort in us because none of you sitting here this morning is without, is perfectly forgiving. I can tell you that because this week I have had to deal with forgiveness and it was really hard. I did not want to. If I was, you know, and I was being very honest with myself and with God, I I do not want to forgive right now. I'm still nursing this anger and this hurts. So I don't want to, but then you kind of have to, don't you? (laughs) Um, So anyways, you know, this is, this is what's happening. The flow of this is he gets, he lands and he finishes here in Matthew 18 um, with this, um, with this last part, which is um, if God has forgiven you, you have to forgive. All right. So this is what's confusing about this whole entire sort of narrative, right? The least of these are the ones that get to come in. Don't prevent them from coming in. Now, uh, it's like the wandering sheep. If the wandering sheep walks away, what are you going to do? You're going to go after them. So you're going to go after this wandering sheep. But then what happens is that if there's sin in the church, what are you going to do? If someone's being divisive, what are you going to do? My thinking there is that what's happening is that there's some people who, because they are not exercising this mission that Christ had given his disciples, which was to forgive other people, that they were beginning to create problems within the church because of their lack of forgiveness. 
And so I think this is part of a larger context that has to do with this consistent theme that the little ones, the lowly ones, they're the ones that are being welcomed in. But the problem for many of us is that we're not able to express this generosity of grace to the lowly people, to the people that are on the outside, to the people that we see as outsiders because, they've, because we don't like them or because there's, there's some kind of unforgiveness happening inside of us. And so we want them on the outside and we're preventing fr- them from coming in And that can be actually what causes division within the church. Oftentimes, when there is division, it is because someone is angry or hurting and carrying their bitterness from past experiences into the church, and they're creating more problems. Does that make sense? This happens in the workforce. If someone comes into the workforce and they're being a jerk to a lot of people and they're really, you know, hard to work with, what is that about? 99.9% of the time, it is that they had an issue, whether it was from childhood or from that morning, and they're bringing it in with them, and they're not able to access the generosity and the grace right now in this moment, and so they're exercising that anger and that frustration, and they're projecting it out onto the world around them. This, This is why the mission that Jesus gives to his disciples is so critical, Because he's saying, in a sense, this is a new way of thinking and of living and of doing life on planet Earth. Because prior to this point, most of us are still in the thinking that it is a a just kind of world, or at least we want it to be a just kind of world, where you do wrong and you get punished for it. But the thing is, when we live in that world, it never ends. And by the way, your justice is different than my justice. And so whoever's in power gets to exercise their form of justice. This is the reason why the U.S. formed and the way the, 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 America, uh, you know, the United States of America formed was to try to have some kind of system that had checks and balances because otherwise people who are in power will be able to do this sort of thing, right? But we still have this in America Everywhere you go, you still have this justice sort of mindset. But that's the reason why the scripture teaches us and says, grace triumphs over justice. It has to. Because otherwise that system never ends. It's a cycle that continues on and on and it darkens you and it darkens everyone around you. So when Jesus teaches this, it's a brand new thing. Now here's what's interesting. Let me tie this back to the whole breath thing. Because in this passage where Jesus breathes on his disciples, the breath of life, when he breathes on them, it is just like what you would have heard. The image was to draw your mind right back to Genesis chapter two, where God breathes into that which is dead, that which is the most dead it could possibly be. He breathes into it and forms life, right? Jesus does the same thing with his disciples. He breathes on them the breath of the spirit. He breathes on them the spirit and then says, receive the spirit, then says, forgive. And if you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. But I wonder if, in order to stay consistent with the other teachings of Jesus, I wonder if what he is saying is not, you have permission to not forgive people. And that's a good thing. But rather, that you're going to have to forgive. Because if you prevent forgiveness, you're actually preventing this flow, this divine flow from happening in this world. But the thing is that I wish there was a definition for what forgiveness means because there still has to be boundaries. 
right? There still has to be protection, right? Absolutely. If someone's being harmful, there's no way I'm going to go, oh, all grace, all forgiveness, and you just can keep harming everyone around you, including me or my family. No way in hell that's going to happen, right? None of us would do that because we have that, that love for the people that we care about. So you know what? I'm not going to even attempt to give an answer to that because that would be foolish. Because this is wisdom literature. And it requires us to act in wisdom in situations like this. And wisdom is really guided by something that is sort of like a, a grappling hook into something better that's always pulling us forward. It's always drawing us towards something. It, it, forgiveness is the better thing. But how do I practice it today? I don't always know. There are times where I will have to have boundaries. There are times where I will have to protect my family, protect other people. So I have to turn inward and I have to ask God, you know, what do you think? (laughs) What should I do here? And I have to turn and look inside me because here's what I've also learned. And this is the wisdom that I've learned over, particularly this week, having to practice it a lot was that I felt justified when I created a particular boundary. I really did. And you know, it always feels good when you first do it. But then as the week progressed, something was not right here. And I kind of felt it. It's a sense of like, you're getting darker, you're getting angrier, you're getting sadder, you're starting to feel heavier, you're not light like you were before. And that was growing inside of me. And so as I sat with that, I felt this sense of uh, this thought come to my mind. Are you going to receive love for yourself right now? Strange question, right? Like, You would have thought, are you going to love that person and show them grace? No, the question was, are you going to receive my grace for you? Because, you know, it's interesting is when I'm punishing somebody else in a real sense, I'm also punishing myself. Try receiving God's love when you're withholding forgiveness from someone. It's really hard. Because the practice of it is to actually open yourself up. So I literally, when I sit there and I'm trying to receive God's grace, I open up my chest like this. I practice just opening up. Okay, I'm gonna receive your grace. I'm gonna enjoy it and receive your forgiveness and receive your love from me. I'm gonna practice it because I don't feel it right away, but I'm gonna practice it. And then it was, can you now express grace and climb to that higher level of love and express grace for the people that you feel have wounded you and have done an injustice to you. And then I saw it. My eyes were open in that moment. I could see, yes, I need to forgive. I need to walk in grace. This isn't about justice anymore. This is about love. This is about grace. It's about forgiveness. So I think when Jesus says what he says, to the disciples, receive the spirits. 
and he breathes on them, the Holy Spirit into them, that then he says, now, forgive. It's moments when you know you've done this, where you've received forgiveness, where you've shown forgiveness, and what happens to you when that hap- when you when you when you do that? What's the first feeling you have when you finally are able to do that and release it? This is just like freedom, right? It's like this peace, this this lightness. Like, okay, I can move on. So my thought is that there's more spirit to experience in our lives by practicing this mission that Christ gave his disciples, which is the practice of forgiveness. And forgiveness is more than just someone did something to me and so I'm just forgiving them. It's also dispositions. Like I think about the disposition of openness to the world. It's like, no, I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be hurt by the world. And so I'm very protective. And that oftentimes comes from because I was hurt at some point and I haven't been able to forgive that. There's other dispositions. There's a disposition of, of, of safety like, or, or, of, or, or of, uh, of freedom. Like I, I, do, I don't want to be confined or controlled by people. And so, you know, I always feel like people are trying to control me or people are trying to confine me or, you know, and so people have this reaction to that, which is uh, I, I just need more freedom. I just need more uh, liberty. I, do, I need more autonomy, you know, and, and that's coming from at some point in time, you did not feel that way and you had a particular a reaction, but can you now have a disposition of openness and of grace to this world? Is it all these dispositions that, that emerge early in our lives from which we live that are not the practice of this openness of forgiveness to the world around us and the receiving of forgiveness for ourselves? I think that's something big that I think begins to, you begin to see, oh my goodness, it's a lot larger than just a particular situation I'm dealing with. It's a disposition that I have towards this world that somehow people are out to get me, that somehow there's not enough resources in this world, that somehow I'm not wanted, that somehow I need to perform, I need to do more in order to, if you go back to that, Can you forgive whatever it is that caused you to begin to think that way? Because you don't need that. You can walk in the grace and in the forgiveness that God asked for you. And in that, receive the breath increasingly of the Spirit of God within us.